Hello all, I'm Paul, creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I've been a crime buff for many years now and my enthusiasm has led its way here. If you fancy each week delving into some obscure but in-depth and often disturbing true crime tales from the shores of the UK, plus you don't mind the northern accents and the down-to-earth manner, then why not come have a nosy? The show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. So it'd be great if you guys could come and have a look-see and I hope you can subscribe today. I'd love you to join me and I look forward to seeing you there too. See if you can become enthusiastic about the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. This episode of Felon may contain disturbing content, including descriptions of violence and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. On the 8th of December, 1987, Frank Vitkovich, armed with a high-powered sawn-off rifle, shot indiscriminately at unsuspecting office workers as he moved through the Australia Post building at 191 Queen Street in the Melbourne CBD. Eight lives were cut down at the hands of Vitkovich in a brutal attack that lasted 17 minutes. During Vitkovich's frenzied attack, police gathered in the street below. They had received an alert from the building when a worker inside had triggered the bank alarm. They initially assumed that they were dealing with an armed robbery, and they swooped on the scene. But as shots echoed from the floors above, they soon realized that they were not dealing with a robbery. With each shot that was heard from within, a massacre was unfolding. Any unit clear for a hold-up alarm the Telecom Credit Union, 191 Queen Street in the city. For information, there are still shots being fired. Urgent, we need more units down here. Shots are fired. bravery. The workers inside the building turned the tables on Vitkovich, and he was overpowered and disarmed. In a final act of desperation, Vitkovich would claim the life of the person he most likely held the most anger towards, himself. Kicking free from those who had taken his gun 
and pinned him to the ground. He dragged himself through a broken window on the 11th floor and out over the ledge. His descent will be witnessed by onlookers in the street below and inside the buildings opposite. Following his fatal fall, the chaos would still continue. Police scrambled to determine if the body that now lay before them was the gunman or if it was one of his victims. At 4.34pm, Vitkovich's body hit the pavement of Queen Street. At 5.04pm, the building was confirmed by the SOG to be cleared and ambulance officers were given permission to enter. They made their way through the building, assisting those who had been injured and keeping a tally of the dead. The moments that passed between 4.34pm and 5.04pm were tense. Transcripts of police radio transmissions revealed the cautious state of emergency response workers at the time. Telecom staff had little time to react when a gunman walked up to the credit union office on the fifth floor of the building just before 4.30 this afternoon. The man, armed with a rifle, demanded money, but when he was tackled by a staff member, he began firing at random. At least one woman was killed outside the credit office. It appears the gunman then ran up to the 11th floor, firing as he went. Eyewitnesses say he went out onto a balcony and attempted to jump. There was a person who was... Um at the um, window and he was uh, apparently 
either being pushed out or he was going to um, jump out of the building and there were two people basically um, sort of holding on to him and he was struggling and kicking and next thing he fell and, um, and then uh, that was about it really. When police entered the building they found bodies strewn on several floors. Streets outside the telecom building remain blocked as police conduct a floor-by-floor -floor search of the building. Um, I understand that obviously the most traumatic part of this is going to be for people wondering if their relatives are okay. Anyone who is worried, could they ring 657 2210? At this stage we won't have uh, names and addresses of those who have been hurt, but if they could uh, leave a name, a contact telephone number and the name of the people they're asking after, and uh, that number will be manned by three telecom people until we've got more information. As news of the attack filtered through the media, families and friends of those who were employed inside the building waited anxiously for updates on the well-being of their loved ones. Police set up a dedicated phone line for the purpose of keeping these individuals informed. The bodies of the eight victims could not be taken to the morgue until three this morning, 11 hours after the shootings. They could only be moved after the coroner, Hal Hallenstein, had checked each one and forensic scientists had thoroughly investigated the crime scenes on the 5th, 11th and 12th floors. The body of the 22-year-old gunman, Frank Vitkovich, lay face down on the pavement for six hours while the city of Melbourne slowly came to grips with the full horror of his crimes. Vitkovich's body was finally removed after 10 o'clock last night. The citizens of Melbourne and the wider community of Australia were left asking, what would drive a stranger to commit such merciless acts? It was also a question that weighed heavy on the mind of the state premier of the time, John Kane. This is a, a city, a society, that's never experienced this sort of thing before. And I just stop and think, what, what more can we do? Uh, young people, 18, 19, 20, just starting out in their working life, just shot down like that. What do you do? State Coroner Hal Hallenstein was assigned to the case and the task of finding whatever answers would be available rested on his shoulders. Mr Hallenstein is the man at the centre of the long-term investigation into what happened in Queen Street yesterday. It's his responsibility to try to find out how, where and if possible why yesterday's massacre happened. As coroner he was one of the first people to view the aftermath of the carnage inside the Australia Post building try to piece together the horror. So I really had to see what was involved so that I would say the first hour was just seeing what was a very very complicated scene on multiple floors, um, multiple uh, multiple coroner's bodies that really took a long time just to absorb to put into a context of what we had to do and what our task was. Mr Hallenstein said already the major responses and community reactions to the shootings were similar to those at the time of the Hoddle Street Massacre. I have to consider what I'm going to do with this as opposed to the Clifton Hill matter. It's apparent that there are some very significant similarities in the matters. It's apparent that they're going to raise at least significantly similar issues. And it seems common sense that when you have two very significant events that have occurred like this, to hear the inquest into each of the deaths involving each of the incidents all in one hearing so that the whole thing can be dealt with in one process and total. It wouldn't be long before Coroner Hallenstein would be provided with a vital piece of information in his search for answers. In the days following the massacre, 
Detectives attended the Vitkovich family home. Here they would find some answers in the words of Frank himself. Vitkovich had been flagged by his lecturers at university as being a candidate for counselling based on a disturbing essay he had produced. But a diary found Frank Vitkovich's room would shed light on the darkness that had brewed inside his mind. In his personal writings, he referred to his diary as Sally because he always wanted a girlfriend called Sally. He would share with Sally his deepest and darkest thoughts. The 16th of September, 1987. Dear Sally, I don't know why I began to write again, but I must have no friends now. Not one. No one to talk to. I'm completely alone. All my life friends have deserted me or treated me so badly that I deserted them. Con was my good friend for about a year. Then I saw the other side of him. I feel the end is near for me now. I don't know why I say that, but I feel it's true. Sometimes I just wish it would all end. Sometimes I feel such rage, it even scares me. The problem is that I have no outlet for my anger. I feel doomed. I'm so alienated. When I do go out, the people just don't seem real. I don't feel part of it. I never have really. My life is such a failure. I'm in hell and there seems to be no escape. I feel so much stress. I worry too much. I just got something inside of me. It's just that sometimes I can't control myself. That's the worst part of it, that I'm so scared of myself. Sometimes I feel I cannot live in this world. I'm losing it. The reason I must write this in this diary is that I must talk to someone. Since I have no friends and my family just laughs at me, I talk to this diary, which I call Sally. I always wanted a girlfriend called Sally. 21st of September, 1987. Today was just like all my other days, boring as hell. I see people and I feel envious and sad. Sad that they have all the things I want and will never have. A family, children, money and a secure job. These are not possible for me now. I cry a lot about this. My days are as lonely as can be. Many times I feel like exploding. Many times I wish it would all end. Frustration, rejection, humiliation are emotions I know very well. Happiness, friendship and a sense of belonging have never been a part of my life. The worst loneliness is when you are alone in a large group of people. They know you don't fit in and you know you can sense the contempt in their eyes for you. 14th of October 1987 I just can't cope much longer. I hate life. I feel close to the end at times, yet death scares me. Death scares me, but not so much as other people, because in some ways, I'm already dead emotionally, I mean. My spirit is just about being broken. I feel so inferior. I feel so small. I just don't add up to anything. I don't talk to people much. I feel like such a piece of garbage, but I'm not garbage. Yet while this goes on on the outside, I feel there is something inside me, eating away at me. It wants me to yield. The 16th of October, 1987. The world is simply full of bastards. You be kind to people, and they use you. They don't appreciate anything that you do for them. Oh no, they return love with hate, kindness with cruelty, care with apathy. I long for the end now. I know the end is near, but I'm not afraid really. It's inevitable. Everyone treats me like dirt. I feel less than human. I feel depressed for my parents and my sister for having a son like me. Such a big failure. 
on the dole and unlikely to get a job because of a lousy knee. I feel so small in the presence of people. I'm so lonely. I just want to hug someone, to love someone, to have someone love me, to make me feel human again. But I know it won't happen. It can't. It won't. It never will. Hate is the dominant emotion now. We are never the same. We are a different person. A new entity has entered us. The old Frank died years ago and has been dead, in fact, for a long time. The result is a walking time bomb, which must go off. As everyone knows, when the bomb goes off, the time bomb itself is destroyed. However, that is necessary because the time bomb is a symbol of destruction and must be destroyed itself. It does not belong within the community. 21st of October, 1987. I feel as though things are getting out of control. The drugs don't help me get through the day. I get so angry, I just want to destroy. The world is full of vicious, cruel people. The world is full of cunts. They drive me nuts. Why do they hate me? Why does the world hate me? I went to the shops today. I bought a new pair of socks. I said to the girl politely that the weather was a bit better today. She looked at me like I was diarrhea. People think I'm worth nothing. Okay, that's the way they want to play. I'll treat them as nothing. If someone insults me, I don't insult back. I just want to kill them. They're all heartless cold monsters who need to be taught a lesson. Life has taught me how horrible people are. I have a purpose. My life has a purpose. Only I can see the purpose. It's deep in my subconscious. 23rd of October, 1987. I'm sick. I'm real sick. I need help. But there is none. I'm a sicko. I've accepted that now. I've tried to be normal. But most of the day, I feel like a raving maniac. I don't know how I've held off so long. It seems I've suppressed too much anger and it's hurting me physically. I must let it out soon. I want to feel in control, but sometimes something else in me takes over and I'm helpless. The rage takes over. At times I feel almost like an animal, just uncontrollable. It's a good feeling for me to destroy things. I like it. it gets rid of tension. I hate them and every fucking one of them. Every dog has his day and mine is soon. The 26th of October, 1987. I'm close to the end. I'm crying now. I can hardly hold this pen. When you're young, there's so much to live for. Now I long for death. People are just so cruel to each other. It just astounds me. Like Con Majalis, for example. He always made fun of my bad leg. He's the scum of the earth. He must pay. He will die. There should not be people like that in this world. They have no right to live. God is on my side. Don't worry, God. I will punish these evil, vicious, cruel, scum people. I will destroy the evil. My job will be done. My mission will be complete. I know I'm ready for the mission. I quit smoking. I'm having my hair cut short. I have to clean up the mess. I'm 22. I'm a man. But I feel like a boy. I feel like a scared boy. The whole world hates me. But don't worry, fucking world. I hate you back three times as fucking much. Every dog has his day. One day, when this dog has his day, a thunderstorm will rain down. The 3rd of November, 1987. People need to open their hearts, especially those greedy businessmen and women in the city. They make me sick to the stomach with the avarice and hypocrisy, condemning and scorning the poor people 
while they pile up money in mountainous quantities. They're sick and need to be taught a lesson. They will all rot in hell. They have no morals, no manners. They're all pigs, and pigs always end up in the slaughterhouse. The 5th of December, 1987. I still feel I have no aim, no purpose, no place to go. It's sort of like a film which is half made, and the director can't think of an ending. But I don't cry. I don't want to give all those scumbag people the knowledge of my pain. I bet Comajalis would really enjoy it. I wonder if he'll enjoy what he's going to get. He'll get what he so richly deserves. A box of chocolates. Ha ha. You didn't expect that. Someone ought to kill all the bastards. That's what they are. Worthless bastards. And bitches with no hearts. However, there is the enemy of all that trash. That enemy is me. I'll fight them tooth and nail. They are not ready for the battle. I am. What a mighty battle it will be. I intend to come out on top. The battle will be fought. And I will win the war. Just like the Anzacs. Or Rambo. We must battle on. I've reached a stage where nothing will get in my way. I'm a steam train coming through, and everyone better get out the way. The 7th of December, 1987. Depression has engulfed me completely. I think I can see the path that's been laid out for me. I've been heading towards that path for the past 14 years or so, perhaps even longer. Each setback pushes you further and further down the path. It seems like it's all meant to be. This is the role fate has chosen for me, and I hate it but I'm stuck in it. The worst in me is really bad. That's what scares me. I guess that's the worst fear of all, when you fear yourself. I'm scared of myself right now. I know what I could do. I had myself under control for at least a year. Sort of a walking time bomb. The fight goes on inside of me every day. I will never be right. It's just when the bad side of me gets out, I lose control. I don't know what I'm going to do. The final entry. The 8th of December, 1987. Today I feel funny, jitters up my bones all over the place, palpitations, anger, all that, it's all there, I've got too much inside me, today it must come out, I can't understand my violent impulses, I don't know what's wrong with me, today I must do it, there's no other way out, I've got to see it through, my head really pounds, I'm all shaky, it's time to die, goodbye all. After his final diary entry, Frank Vitkovich penned a note to his family and then made his way towards the city. This note read, To my dear family, I'm sorry for all the trouble and heartache I've caused you. I've been such a failure. I went down the wrong path. I should have listened to Pop and not played so much tennis instead of sticking to my law studies and things might have been different today. How I wish I could change the last few years, make things right, make you happy and proud of me. But the seeds of doom were planted very early, as early as eight years of age. Several incidents hurt and changed me, so much there was no hope of being the same. I carried that with me all these past 14 years or so. To my dear mum, I love you with all my heart. When I think of how hard you worked for me, and Lily, and the love you gave us, it made me cry. It always makes me cry. When I'm at home, I think of you there at work, and cry. I've let you down very badly, mama, and I'm so sorry. You know how much anguish I felt over the knee injury. We all felt the same anguish. I knew I was never going to be successful, and it hurt me a lot. Things looked so bright a few years ago, but it faded fast. I hope, Mum, you can remember me when I was a boy on your shoulders and you carried me to kindergarten. Remember me when I was a bright young boy of 12. It was so gentle and kind. Then I changed slowly but surely. I didn't want it to happen, but it did. I tried to fight it, but the impulse was growing too strong. It has destroyed me. 
I just hope that someday you can forgive me and remember me once in a while because I'll never forget you, Mama. I'll love you always. To dear Papa or Pops, you deserved a better son than me. I was never good enough, I admit that. I never pushed myself to the limit. I was lazy. I took the easy way out. I played too much tennis and wrecked my knee. And eventually my whole life was wrecked. I know how disappointed you were. I saw the sadness in your eyes. You worked so hard to make a good life for me and I messed it all up because I thought I knew it all. How little I knew. But you don't know Pops that I felt very bad about my situation too. It was the reason I was seeing the doctors all the time. All the anxiety, stress and depression hurt my health. It didn't do you too much good either. We had some great times Pop. Like our fishing trips when I almost dropped the rod into the sea. Or our trips to the espresso bar to play billiards. When I was young, I just loved billiards. Hey dad, I always loved you too. You were just about the best father a boy could have. You gave me everything. You were so kind and loving. You're a great person. There are not enough in the world like you, Pops. You were always good to me. I will miss you so much, I can't describe it. To my sister Lily, what can I say? I wish I was never born. Might be the closest to the truth. But you could understand. You saw the stresses building up inside me. Only you saw why I've had the rages. I felt as though I've had a raw deal. I was so frustrated. But you helped me through the bad times. Your optimism and sense of living kept me going at a time when I thought I was going to die. I wish I could be a better brother, but I can't change the way I am. We had so many fun times. It was just unreal. We had happy childhoods. It was great. Things went sour for me, but you kept me laughing. We had our fights. We called each other names, but we always kept loving each other. I hope you can forgive me for what I've done, but even if you don't, I'll understand it. It's hard to understand these things. That's been the problem. At times, even I don't understand why I feel such violent impulses. They run through my whole body. I've had them at least since the start of this year. I've kept them reasonably under control until now. You've seen flashes of my rage, but now it's reached the point of no return. These rages have been so bad last month, they've caused me terrible headaches. I just can't go on. I can't live in this world. I'm ready to die. It's time for me to die. Life is just not worth living. These diary entries and a final letter to his family provided investigators and the coroner with a disturbing peek into the mind of Vitkovich leading up to the massacre. There will be a prominent reference for the inquest that was conducted into the tragedy. Crown Prosecutor Joe Dixon began his opening address to Coroner Hal Hallenstein today by stressing he would try to avoid emotive language. But he added the enormity of what happened on this day is such to engender feelings of great disquiet within the community. He outlined events which had turned a 22-year-old law student into a very, very depressed man seeking to blame others for his condition. Mr Dixon said police had discovered a diary with the last entry the day before the killings. He said a reading of that diary demonstrates even to the layperson a clear deterioration in the mind of Frank Vitkovich. The court was told he developed a towering hatred for a former friend who, for no rational reason, had become the epitome of everything Vitkovich hated at the time. It was that man the gunman went to kill at 191 Queen Street. Ironically, he survived as Vitkovich went on a shooting spree on three floors before jumping to his death. Late today, Vitkovich's sister Lillian appeared in the witness box, her head covered by a black and white scarf. She gave evidence of a normal family life and a very normal brother who gave no indication of what he was about to do. Detective Sergeant Hill uncovered the bizarre diaries and was the first person to read them. He also saw the bloody result at Queen Street and today told Coroner Hallenstein that in 21 years of police work, he'd never seen a more horrific example of wanton, deliberate and callous multiple murder 
carried out against innocent, trapped, defenceless people. Detective Sergeant Hill said he found a magazine in the killer's bedroom. In it, Vitkovich had written, Psycho's rule. I'm a psycho. Killing is my hobby. Stop me before I kill. Also read to the court today was the last entry in the diaries made on the day of the massacre. Vitkovich wrote, Today I must do it. There's no other way out. My head really pounds. I'm all shaky. It's time to die. Vitkovich's diaries were his only positive legacy, and he was aware of it, saying in his last entry that he hoped society might benefit from a reading of his twisted thoughts. The inquest continues Malcolm tomorrow. Morgan told the court Vitkovich was referred to him after writing a disturbing and bizarre answer to a question in a law exam in 1986. He said the 21-year-old presented as a severely disturbed young man with many problems, adding that he was worried about violent fantasies which focused on damage to himself and others. Mr Morgan said Vitkovich saw the world as a terrible and dangerous place and was someone in the hinterland between functioning normally and not. Mr Morgan said Vitkovich could be described as pre-schizophrenic or a borderline psychotic. He said his main concern seemed to be to get revenge against friends who he considered to have been disloyal. Coroner Hal Hallenstein was told that it was one of those allegedly disloyal friends Vitkovich had intended to kill when he massacred eight people at Queen Street. Late today, Firearms Registrar Chief Inspector Peter Keogh told the court that even the new firearms legislation could not screen out a person like Vitkovich. The inquest continues tomorrow. Dirac was one of the five people Vitkovich wounded. He was shot four times, once in the neck, in the shoulder, in the elbow and back. He told Coroner Hallenstein he opened the security door which allowed the killer onto the 12th floor of 191 Queen Street. He said after being shot at least once, he heard Vitkovich ask, Are you dead yet? Well, you will be soon. He added, Then the world exploded again and it went white. Dirac also outlined the slackening of security which included increasing storage space at the expense of security, stacking stationery over a bulletproof security window which in turn led to a change of practice, meaning the security door had to be opened to screen strangers. The court also heard from another 12th floor employee who said she'd seen a friend plead for her life before being killed. She said she heard Vitkovich say, how do they expect me to kill people with this gun as his weapon repeatedly misfired? The inquest continues next week. Mark Gillies, 7 News. Senior Constable Malcolm East arrived at the Australia Post building while Frank Vitkovic was still shooting workers on the upper floors. As other police arrived, he gave orders to seal off the building and begin clearing the street. Senior Constable East seemed uneasy in the witness stand at times and admitted that he and the other police at the scene were frightened. He says the situation was chaotic and he called for a senior officer to take over but got no response. He told the coroner there was a lot of officers running around. Many were giving orders. They all had a finger in the pie, he said, but no one seemed to be in charge. He and other police entered the building after giving up waiting for the special operations group. East's partner, senior constable Alan Churcher, says he was in the foyer of the building, expecting to meet the gunman trying to escape. It was he who ordered workers back into the lifts, telling them they'd be safe on the top floor. He said he could hear shots from outside and had no portable radio to hear what was going on in the street. Senior Constable East told the coroner that their division with 90 officers had only one portable radio. After a lengthy and thorough investigation and a consideration of the preceding information, on the 7th of October, 1988, Coroner Hal Hallenstein announced his findings. 
Mr. Hellenstein concluded that Frank Vitkovich contributed to the deaths of nine people, including his own, in a shooting spree that lasted just 17 minutes at the Australia Post building on December the 8th last year. He said in some ways Vitkovich's mannerisms in stalking his victims through three floors of the building resembled the fictitious Rambo character in the film First Blood. He said the opinion of two psychologists who tested Vitkovich in 1986 was that the killer was profoundly depressed, paranoid, schizophrenic and insane, and he noted it was unfortunate that he was not recommended for extensive psychiatric treatment then. The coroner found it hard to criticise police response to the shooting, saying they took the conservative course in securing the building and making sure the sole gunman was dead before allowing ambulancemen to enter and treat the injured. In reference to Senior Constable Malcolm East, one of the frontline officers who was first to arrive and cleared the area without the help of two-way radios, the coroner described him as a maverick, afraid, exposed and ill-equipped, who nonetheless did his job well and was an example to junior officers. Inspector Adrian Fife, who took control of the situation, praised the police involved. It's had a traumatic effect on the members of the police force in this uh, terrible situation and I hope that myself as a policeman never have to experience another one. On the issue of police sending some people back into the lifts during the shooting, Mr Hallenstein said it was probably lucky no one was killed or injured. He said security inside the building was adequate and that the unusual and maniacal circumstances of this incident were a difficult gauge for precaution. The coroner paid special tribute to Australia Post employees Tony Joyer and Frank Carmody who disarmed Vitkovich and stopped the shootings. He said their examples of human strength, spirit and courage were a form of balance for madness. A psychologist who's been counselling colleagues and relatives of the victims since the tragedy said many of them would be satisfied with the outcome of the inquest. Although it's painful, it does give people an opportunity to find out a bit more about what happened um, and perhaps a little bit about why it happened. And that process is, is part of coming to terms with the incident and being able to put it behind them. While the coroner's findings provided some answers as to the why, it did little to comfort those who lost loved ones in such a sudden and violent event. In the years following the tragedy, family, friends and colleagues will continue to return to 191 Queen Street to remember their fallen loved ones. Remember them with love. December the 8th, 1987, will be remembered as a black day in Melbourne's history. A year later, the friends, families and workmates of the eight people killed in the Queen Street shootings are still struggling with their loss. A special memorial service in their honour was held at St Francis Church in Melbourne today. Australia Post has also commissioned artist David Wright to design a commemorative stained glass window. The design portraying the families of the victims and the city of Melbourne is a symbol of hope for the community in as a whole. In the quiet corner of Melbourne's GPO, a small group gathered to remember their colleagues gunned down in cold blood ten years ago. Eight people died in the Queen Street massacre. Crazed gunman Frank Vitkovich opened fire in the Australia Post building, finally jumping to his own death. Today, survivors paid tribute to those killed. Colin Hanna came face to face with Vitkovich, but fled as the gun jammed. It's, um one of those events that you just hope no one else will ever live through. Uh, and again, it's just one of those things you remember the people that have died and uh, the families that have got to go on. Ron Quayle was in charge of the department where most people were killed. It's just taken, taken the 10 years to really come to terms with it, I think. 
10 years on and only a handful of people who are in the building on the day still work for Australia Post, but say they now share a special bond having lived through the terror of the shooting. But Malcolm East has never recovered. The first policeman on the scene, he deeply regrets not chasing Vitkovic through the building. The 10th anniversary has haunted him. Like I haven't myself slept for six days, probably. Worrying about Just knowing the day's coming, that's all. Um, I just wish I could have done more. East is now on permanent work cover benefits for severe anxiety and medical problems. I'll never work again. I just wish I'd never turned up really. Felon, true crime, the underbelly of the land down under.